Hello. Okay, I have it recording. I will start the script. The first story I wrote for STAT was about the presidents of Dillard University and Xavier University of Louisiana, two historically black colleges in New Orleans. It was the fall of 2020, and the presidents had decided to enroll in a clinical trial for COVID vaccines. To them, it was a small act of civil service, just two black men rolling up their sleeves. After they received their shots, the presidents wrote a letter to their communities. They suggested that maybe everyone should join a trial and get a shot as well. But almost immediately, they were flooded with angry reactions on social media. They got letters and comments from people saying things like, Our children are not lab rats for drug companies. How dare an HBCU do this to our people? And Tuskegee, Tuskegee, me and mine won't be first in line. For me, it was an eye-opening moment to see this real-time microcosm of medical mistrust among the Black community. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter at STAT, where I focus on the intersection of race, medicine, and the life sciences. This is Color Code, a podcast where over eight episodes will highlight the history and the current reality of anti-Black racism in healthcare. We'll be releasing episodes every other week this spring. We made this podcast to add to the national conversation on health equity. It's a conversation that the pandemic and our country's racial reckoning has thrust into center stage. Through these episodes, we'll hear from patients as well as from clinicians and researchers who are trying to get and give good care in a deeply flawed system. This podcast is for anyone interested in helping close racial health gaps in medicine. From the unethical Tuskegee syphilis trials to today, Black folk have every reason to feel mistrust. The trepidation that we saw on those HBCU campuses towards the vaccine clinical trials, that was just one example. Sometimes mistrust is born out of an individual's interactions with the medical system. Even one traumatic experience can stick with someone for a lifetime. I view it as changing into a monster. These blisters start popping up on my skin. They, um, they itch, they... It's very uncomfortable. My ears, the bottom of my feet, my hands, like any, you know, can't hardly bend your hands. I couldn't wash dishes for two weeks. You know, these are things that interfere with my daily, lively activities, okay? Um, if you can see this mark right here, these are from so... Nicole Bowden served in the Army in the late 90s and early aughts, enlisting when she was 17. One day, years after her service ended, she went to the VA for a birth control shot. She'd been getting the shots every few months for a while, but this time she said something felt different. The next day I woke up, my throat was closing. I had an allergic reaction. They took a biopsy of the blister and said that it, um, it was like my immune system. It kind of like attacked my immune system. They said I had um, erythema multiforme, which 
had never had this a day in my life, had never had a blister break, you know, like this. And when I tell you, it's like, oh, well, maybe you had this already. Well, maybe I didn't because I've been taking Defro birth control shots since I was 17 years old. I was 29, 30 years old and just now had an allergic reaction to a Depo-Vera shot that I've been taking for years. 10 years later, if life becomes too overwhelming for me or I don't know how to release my stress and I internalize it, it comes out in blisters. You know what I mean? That made me mistrust them. Nicole just, she, she didn't know what was going on. She said she felt dismissed by doctors and in some cases judged by them. They weren't answering her questions. They were trying to blame her. And she often felt gaslit. She also said she, she never got the answers to some of the questions she was looking for. It's a feeling that many Black patients, especially Black women like Nicole, have experienced. Black clinicians and researchers have witnessed it as well, and sometimes they see it from their own colleagues. The, the thing that, 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 that most struck me in my training was the way in which patients with sickle cell disease were treated. That's Dr. Reed Tuxen. Uh, I remember so vividly uh, that a sickle cell patient would be in the emergency room of a major American teaching hospital in a major American city. And uh, the nurse in the ER would uh, pull the quote-unquote soundproof curtain <laughs> that, that separates one uh, treatment bay from another and then declare uh, 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 fairly loudly to the other people, I think they're just here to get drugs. Well, you know, a person with sickle cell disease uh, usually has a chart about the size of a Manhattan telephone book, if, if we still had, you know, telephone books. It was so clear that this person has had a long history of pain, misery, and suffering. And that really was one of the most important moments in my professional career, because I then knew I had to take steps to reorient that hospital and how they took care and treated my brothers and sisters. Reed works to repair the relationship between Black folk and the medical establishment. He's the co-founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID, an advocacy group designed to bring trustworthy, fact-based information about the pandemic to Black communities from Black experts. So that's meant hosting town halls with Black doctors and researchers in order to combat misinformation, uh, especially around vaccines. He built the coalition on the foundation of his more than 40 years in medicine. Unfortunately, because of the historical and contemporary experience that Black Americans have with our society, uh, there is a built-in level of distrust of, of elites, of, sci of, of, of institutions of our society, and, of course, of our, uh, of our medical community. When tens of thousands of people uh, are compelled to take to the city streets to scream out that their lives matter, uh, that their dignity has to be respected. That is not, and we knew that was not just a criminal justice issue. Uh, when we deal with voter disenfranchisement efforts across the nation, we knew that that is not just a political uh, issue. All of these also roll up into affecting how people interact with institutions such as our health institutions. So you had mentioned the Tuskegee uh, experiment and such and how that has been, you know, really 
burned into the the, the, the the psyche of black Americans in this country in terms of, you know, the medical medical mistrust and such. Um, through the numerous people I've spoken to uh, and doctors as well, they say not only is that an issue, but the current experiences of, of, of black people when it comes to their interactions with the medical community or doctors is also an issue. Sometimes they might go to see a doctor and feel like they're not being listened to or they're not heard. And how does that play into this overall problem of, of, of mistrust in the black community of the medical establishment? There is no question that these are legitimate and real issues and that the medical community is not different from the criminal justice or the political or other parts of America's social uh, uh, fabric. Uh, and it is sad. I, as a physician, have observed it personally and witnessed it and fought against it. I have worked in major white hospital institutions and uh, have been dismayed uh, by the way in which uh, my colleagues have treated black patients and I have uh, endeavored uh, to, to call that behavior out and to try to rectify it. Physicians like Reed have long been fighting for just treatment of black patients in hospitals. While injustice is spread across the country, communities within a state, a city, or even a neighborhood may often have specific historic memories and present-day experiences of mistreatment. Well, hello there, Arnithia Sutton. Uh, how are you doing? Tell me a, a little bit about who you are and how your day has been going, kind of as a, an intro here. <laughs> I am Arnithia Sutton, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. Um, and I am in Richmond, Virginia. Arnithia is a postdoctoral fellow at Virginian Commonwealth University. She's been in the community for over two decades, having studied and worked at VCU, where she earned her bachelor's, her master's, and her PhD. Most of her work focuses on racial disparities in breast cancer, but she also studies medical mistrust. I, I feel like some people just consider like this kind of loosey-goosey concept. Medical mistrust impacts outcomes, period. You know, people will not engage in the medical system because of their lack of trust in the medical system. And that's not that individual's problem. As healthcare providers and research, that's our problem. For many people who live around the VCU medical system, that distrust, it runs deep. You know, we had at one point segregated hospitals and there were vast differences in the actual facilities and the actual care that people received. And this wasn't that long ago. So people that I know very well remember being treated at this hospital and remember being told, like, don't walk past VCU after a certain hour or someone will snatch you for medical experimentation and et cetera. In 1994, a ghastly discovery gave historical fuel to that fear. During construction for a medical school building at VCU, workers uncover the remains of about 50 people, mostly of African descent and most likely enslaved people. These black bodies were stolen from their graves and used as cadavers for medical students in the mid-1800s. When the students were done eviscerating the bodies, the remains were thrown into nearby wells. Tell me a bit about knowing that history, because as you said, you had to go and, and, and learn that history. Now knowing that history, how does that change or inform the way that you, you do your outreach now? Well, one, it's great because it's not a shock factor anymore. 
So at first where I would engage individuals in different studies or even in some education, like I would go to some churches and educate and they would bring up some things that occurred in Richmond or with VCU and I would sit there and be like in shock and yet I'm wearing a VCU shirt. You know, that's unacceptable. Obviously, like VCU isn't alone in this. There has been, you know, a history of institutions who have mistreated black folk, especially, I mean, in, in this country. Has VCU taken steps towards acknowledging these faults in their past? Have they either done enough or what would it, what would that look like? What would atonement look like? So the first thing you said was acknowledge, which I have to say, you know, VCU definitely has acknowledged what they've done. And you know, there are lots of institutions now who can't even get that close. Like they know it and they are skirt around it, but it's like, no, just explicitly state, this is what we did and this was wrong and this is what happened. The university set up a small exhibit to tell the story of the East Marshall Street well. Four panels hang on a wall inside the building where the discovery was made. Each panel details a period in the history of the bodies from the 1840s to present day. In the text, the school acknowledged their past mistakes, their insensitivity during the discovery, and their plans to rebury the bodies. These are small steps towards repairing the institution's relationship with the Black community. VCU has done a lot over the last, I guess, almost 30 years now, working with the community to figure out, like, how do we address this? But, you know, that's just one story. That history, it... It, it stays with people, and it affects how they interact with the institution today. It's hard to forget that. The, the, the bones in the wells, or, or limb pits, as they were called, they, they gave credence to many Black folk in the community that their mistrust in VCU was not misplaced. But you don't always have to go back into history to find incidents that make people feel cautious or unsafe in hospitals. As a black woman, Arnithia has her own personal experiences with healthcare that leave her wary. I mean, I have a mistrust of the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of what I've seen, how I've seen providers treat my family members. My mother called me crying one day in the emergency room because I, something's wrong, like they're not listening to me, the doctor has not been in, every time he comes in, he just leaves out. And so I had to drive two hours away to go to my mother's bedside and like I say for, you know, I'll, I use the term try to flex. Like, okay, hey. Like, and then my mom's like, my daughter's a doctor. And I'm thinking, oh God, don't start. But it, it's sad that we have to do things like that to try to get like quality care. And that's why I said, so I think there's still a lot more for us to try to understand with regard to like where mistrust comes from in certain communities. Um, and I think trying to understand that like in the present day context to help us with, re- with regards to trying to eliminating it. It's hard to overstate the impact that centuries of unequal care and abuse can have on a community. A young lady I worked with when I worked for the health system, um, her mother worked up the street and she had a medical emergency and she got a phone call. And I just remember her mother saying, make sure they don't bring me there. Now, mind you, she's literally like a couple blocks away from the health system. And yet she wanted to go somewhere that was probably about 15 to 20 minutes away. Um, because, you know, her mother had said, don't go there. Um, and so these are very like palpable, real stories that you're hearing from people, people's perceptions of things. You got to remember people's perceptions are the reality and that's the way it's going to play out. And so, because that's what's been going through their family and their communities, then that's, that's their, their lived experience. So as someone who's been in the community for 20 years, as you said, do you feel that you are kind of like a, a, 
the term we hear a lot are trusted messengers, people who, you know, have the trust of their community. Do, do you feel that's where you are right now? I do. I like to think so. I like to think so. That's an interesting question to ask somebody. I'm like, yeah, of course I am. No, I, um, yeah, I, I really do. Probably the last 10 years or so, I've been very um, intentional about sharing messages about health in general. And so, you know, I do attend a very, a nice size church within the city. Um, and so I definitely do work there. And then through my church, I've had opportunities to do things with other churches, um, anything from, yeah, blood donation and sickle cell disease to just talking about cancer and prevention and health disparities. And so, you know, I've had opportunities for people reach out to me to ask me questions, what I think about this. You know, I have to co constantly remind people that I'm not a physician, so I can't, you know, I can't diagnose you, even though I guess I've become trusted for that, even though I shouldn't be. Trusted messengers can be key figures in rebuilding trust. They often acknowledge that there are valid reasons that people would not trust medical systems. For many, the church is the essential trusted messenger. People don't walk around, you know, sort of saying, oh, I don't want to be healthy. Nobody does that, right? But what they do do is say, I want to be healthy, but I want to be healthy on my own terms. Or I want to be healthy because I believe you care about me. That's Dr. Terry Laws, an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at the University of Michigan. Part of her research stands at the intersection of religion and healthcare, which was not an intersection I was used to hearing about. I actually went to seminary, and when I went to seminary, we were reading a passage um, that I saw as essentially uh, exchanges in the Bible itself that were really about healthcare and and access to healthcare, and of course some of my um, uh, colleagues were like, "You're reading into the Bible," <laughs> and and I didn't feel that way. I just felt like, no, what we're missing is how even in ancient wisdom there is a need to serve others, and and that includes healthcare. To Terry and many others, it's long been an important part of a pastor's role to talk about health. The history of Black pastors in America is that they don't just serve in the pulpit. They serve the community as translators. They were often some of the most educated persons in the community. This is from, this is from slave time and reconstruction. What do you say to people who may not, you know, look like the community they serve, um, especially like white doctors, but who want to be, be trusted messengers? What do they need to know? What do they need to learn? I always say, please do understand when I'm talking about cultural competence, and this is across racial and ethnic groups, understand the role of, 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 uh, of elders, understand the role of the community um, community messengers. They are trusted, but they're, but they're serving multiple roles. Never think of a physician only as a physician. Whatever the question is, justice always has to be the answer. And justice being, how do we distribute the social goods that impact all of us? And excellent health is a social good, but it is not created by the individual alone. For Nicole, her experience in the Army plays a big role in her mistrust towards medicine. 
Okay, so then I'm 17 and I go to the military and I'm being shot up with just everything. You walk through a line and they're just poking you in your arm. You're like, what are you giving me? Oh, you know, face forward, eyes, eyes straight. And I think that was my first sense of mistrust because I'm asking you, what are you putting inside of me? And you can't tell me. You told me to look forward, keep my eyes straight ahead. As an adult, she sought mental health care from the VA. But that experience was similarly troubling for her. You know, I developed PTSD and then going back to the VA for mental help. So it was physical at first. Now we're on the mental side. Now you're just trying to give me pills. Pills, take this, try this. Well, I can't really function. This have me, you know, so groggy and so down. You know, I'm waking up like I'm having a hangover. Like, well, oh, well, just keep taking it. It'll get better. Well, no, what is this doing to my body? Hold on, hold on. I shot away from the VA for a long time. And because this is... I, I, I went, I served, and this is what's free to me. And um, I can't afford a better insurance, so it's either public aid or the VA. Today, Nicole is seeking therapy outside of the VA. When she's meeting a potential new therapist, she's hoping for a shared understanding of race, gender, and other life experiences or past trauma. First of all, is um, you're looking at the person, and, and, you know, they... they they look like you, first and foremost. But not only look like you, they've experienced some of those things that you've experienced. They, they can relate. You know, in some cases, a, a therapist can be a trusted messenger. There's an intimate connection between a counselor and client. I connected to her experience, you know? She, she could relate to me. She'd been through an experience, not maybe mine, but she's been through something that can connect. So she's been through it, right? She's been through it so she can go back and tell somebody about it. That was, that's the difference right there. Personally, I feel like uh, you and I kind of connect over that in that I'm early in my search looking for, you know, like a therapist as well or someone who could kind of relate to me in those those levels. So I, I actually last week, I, you know, I kind of had a, a consultation or an interview with um, a, a gentleman who is, you know, a black therapist as well as a professional kind of executive coach as well. And through that talk, I, I kind of felt like that was something that I was interested in or looking for because one, as you said, like, you know, he looked like me, but he, he also kind of runs a service aimed towards black men, uh, especially black men in kind of the professional world. And that's something that I didn't realize connected so well with me. I had seen a therapist once in, in college and it was just an experience where I, I only saw him once, maybe twice, and it, it just kind of turned me off from the whole thing. And you know, for myself, now that I'm at that point where I kind of feel, finally feel like, okay, maybe I should, you know, seek out someone to just, to just talk to. Um, I'm definitely in a similar position where I'm, I'm seeking out someone who, who does look like me, who could relate to some of those things where, you know, I don't have to explain what like a microaggression is or something, someone who understands that. Right. And you know, I, I want to take it back to, um, to why I connect um, so much and maybe um, her training is maybe a little different also because you know she she's like a trauma informed you know therapist you know she she's dealt with people that's dealt with traumatic experiences you know and maybe she's even been through some traumatic experiences how would you describe yourself right now in terms of your relationship with the you know doctors, the medical institution. Yeah, I used to say powerless, but now I know that there's um, 
this strong word called advocacy, right? There's a strong word called advocacy. And, and we have voices, right? So getting with organizations that amplify the peer voice, getting, um, just being out there, being educated, being a voice, getting out there and being in, in spaces to be heard, okay? That's, that's how the, a change is going to come. Trusted messengers can create other trusted messengers. Through the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, Nicole is training to be a peer support specialist. As she continues to fight for herself within the medical system, she wants to serve as a trusted messenger to people like her. By using her own lived experiences as a touchstone, she's helping people who are dealing with similar mental health issues. To me, I see them like as that helper, you know. They would be that person that, hey, I've been through this before. I can relate to you. Um, I want to help you in reaching your goals, whether that be advocating with you for uh, medical access to your provider, whether that be um, getting transportation to your appointments, whether that be getting helping you get set up with the therapist, uh, helping you reach those goals that's going to keep you living that self-directed life because everybody's journey is different. You know, this thing called recovery is not linear. It's not the one line thing. Everybody is going at it at their own pace in their own way. The upsetting or even traumatic experiences Black people often face within medical systems can create distrust. But people who share in those experiences have an intimate knowledge of how others are feeling, and they can help them find the care they need. For Reed, he was able to utilize his experiences as a trusted messenger and lean on other trusted messengers to help get Black communities vaccinated. And so we had to work very hard to get doses into the Black community itself and having trusted institutions like Black churches, Black community organizations, partnering with medical administrators uh, to be able to hold these vaccine clinics and getting people vaccinated in the community itself. That was a very important learning, a very important initiative, and a very important uh, opportunity to, to get more Black folks uh, vaccinated. Reed and other trusted messengers face many challenges in trying to restore trust. But an all-too-important mission compels them to keep moving forward. I am given hope because I have an undying love for Black people. And through that undying love for Black people, an undying love for all people. I remember the great civil rights uh, warrior uh, named Ella Baker down south uh, in, during the civil rights era. And she fought so hard uh, for, for, for Black uh, civil rights. And Ella Baker is one of the great heroes of the movement. And I remember her saying one day so clearly, I ain't no ways tired. And I'll tell you what, there's too much at stake too much at stake, too many lives at stake, too much pain and misery at stake. I'm inspired by love, an undying love, and I will never stop. That love is a shared, unshakable sentiment that drives each trusted messenger to try their best to mend what really seems unmendable. Thank you so much for listening and being part of our Color Code community. Our team here at STAT is Alyssa Ambrose, Hyacinth Empinado, 
Teresa Gaffney, Crystal Milner, and me, Nick St. Fleur. Kevin Seaman is our engineer, and Tino Della Merced is our intern. Our theme music is by Brian Joel. Special thanks to Nicole Bowden, Dr. Reed Tuxen, Dr. Arnithia Sutton, and Dr. Terry Laws. Thanks to the Commonwealth Fund for supporting this podcast. After every episode, we'll have a bunch of photos and some more reading related to the episode's topic at statnews.com. So please, go check it out. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and subscribe. And if you have any thoughts for us, you can reach out at colorcode at statnews.com. 